you guys would turn with me to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm chapter 7. If you don't know where the Psalms are, it's just a little bit before midway through your Bible. Psalm chapter 7 says this. The Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. God, we're thankful that we have the opportunity weekly to gather here and to worship you, to hear the word preached, the word sung, and the word prayed. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would illuminate our minds, God, that you would help us to understand that which our, our minds are unable to apart from your spirit. Lord, that you would help us um, in, through your word to grow to know you more, and to walk away from this place glorifying you and exalting you in everything that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I saw a sign the other day. Um, I was out, and, and it struck me. It said, if you believe that tomorrow will be a better day, you will find the strength to endure the hardship of today. Now, I don't know how that might sit with you initially, but, but for me, I was sort of frustrated. I find that, that signs like that, empty phrases like that, really don't offer anything to anybody, especially to the person who suffers. Because what about the person who's been suffering for, for weeks or, or months or years? What, what real hope do they have that tomorrow might be better? And how are they supposed to, in and of themselves, muster up the strength to believe that and somehow make that current and present day any better? Now, the reality is, is that human hope is fickle. Everybody finds refuge in something when they suffer, whether that be 
your friends, your family, or hopefully the, the Lord first and foremost, whether it be your money, your job, your homes, your things, or even just plainly yourself. Everybody looks to something as a refuge. Everybody looks to something for security when they suffer. Yet our self-built refuges offer us no real consolation. And the bottom line is that nobody escapes the inevitability of suffering. I know that most of you walked in here this morning having faced innumerable sufferings in your own lives or, or even struggling immensely this morning with something. I, I, I get that, and I, I want to be competent or aware of that because the reality is that sin has devastated all of the world. It has corrupted all of human nature, and we suffer as a result of sin. And so I don't want to discredit the reality that I know most of you have come in here suffering. But what I want to do is look at suffering and look at our text in Psalm chapter 7 and find where it is that David found a refuge. If we just even briefly consider the headlines for the past few months or, or even years, it is incredibly apparent that something is wrong with the world. From the murdering of innocent lives to the injustices that Christians are facing at an increased rate or to the general suffering that each of us face in our day-to-day -day lives. I know that some of you walked in here with worries. But amidst those sufferings and afflictions, your refuge tends to be the immediate place that you go. I know for me, my natural inclination is to reach out to other people. And I don't just mean to reach out to other people in a good sense, because in a lot of ways we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. we celebrate that. We want people to seek help when they suffer. We want people to go to someone to get counsel, to get prayer, to get comfort in their affliction. But as is the nature of man, I, I do far more than that. Because the reality is that when I'm, I'm reaching out to people to try to find some consolation, to find some help, some refuge in my suffering, that I'm asking something of people that they can never provide for me. I, I, I don't just want them to comfort me. I want something more. And I can't always put my, my finger on it, but that's the reality of, of my own sinfulness. And I know that where some are like me, there are others who are quite different in that they think that they have it in, the, in themselves. They think that they are their own refuge, their strength, their ability to cope, um, their, their endurance during hard times. Some people might think about that sign that I, I quoted in the beginning and go, yeah, yeah, that's, that, I think that's a good quote. I think that that's helpful. I think that we should hope in tomorrow. I think that we should find refuge in that tomorrow might be a better day. But the bottom line is that that doesn't last either because our self-generated refuges are empty and worthless. We can't handle the repercussions of a sinful, depraved world. Our emotions rage, our strength wanes, and at the end of the day, we're left wanting. Every single person in this room this morning will despair of their sufferings if their refuge is found in any place other than where David finds his refuge in Psalm chapter 7. This morning our text deals with a man who likely suffered much more than you and me. David was God's anointed king, and he spent a, a vast majority or, or a great deal of his life running from people who wanted to kill him. I don't know if that's something that you've faced, but it's not something that I've faced. 
And so David is, David is emotionally, physically, spiritually distraught by the injustice of sinful men. And, and because our text deals with this injustice in particular, I want us to consider that, and I want us to consider the reality that David's refuge in, in Psalm chapter 7 is found amidst injustices, but I also think that that refuge transcends all of human suffering, and so I want our focus to be general. This morning, we will find that David's refuge was in the Lord, and, and we'll see that that's going to be realized for us in three different aspects. Our main objective is to see that the, f- the fullness of David's refuge in the Lord. And those three ways that we will find that is then that first, David finds refuge in that God will judge the world concerning sin. David finds refuge in the judgment of God. Second, that God will save the righteous. David finds refuge in the salvation of the Lord. And the third is that God is a gracious God. David is reminded at the gracious and merciful character of his holy God. And so begin by looking at our first point, that God will judge the world concerning sin by looking at the first seven verses. The Shagion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. So let's take a second and and look at the historical context, the textual context, by observing the superscription. Now, that's at the very top, right above verse 1, that different font that we see above there. That's actually a part of the inspired text. So oftentimes in the Psalms, we'll see that helping us to understand the context, what's going on. And and sometimes there's a a specific historical moment that David is is responding to as he sings or or whatever psalmist um, has written that psalm. And, and we can see right away this word, a shagion of David. And so, obviously, being from the book of Psalms, we know that it's a psalm, but we don't know what a shagion is. Scholars have, have different speculations as to what it could mean, but the reality is that it's only used two different places in Scripture, and so it's not really that helpful for us. But what we do know and can gather is that David is singing to the Lord concerning the words of a man named Cush, who is a Benjaminite. But even Cush, we're not certain who he is. I say we as if I'm a scholar. That's not the case. Scholars aren't sure who even Cush is. There's a few instances that the name Cush is used in the Old Testament in historical books, but we don't know that it's the same person that David is talking about. And so scholars differ that this is either a result of two instances in David's life. It was either happening as a result of David's being persecuted at the hands of Saul, who was the first king of Israel, or David's being persecuted at the hands of Absalom, David's own son. But all of that to say, we can still gather 
that David is singing to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, who is a Benjaminite. That means he is, he is a brother. He is of, the, he is of Israel. He, he, this is one of David's own kinsmen. And so we know that this, these words must have been slanderous false accusations because of how David goes on to tell us that he is not guilty of the charges that are brought against him. And so all of that to say, let's consider his opening statement. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. I don't know how, amidst David's sufferings, he can, with such immense confidence, call upon the Lord as his refuge, call upon the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and confidently ask him to save him. I I don't know how that can be the first thought of his. I, I know that it should be the first thought of ours, but amidst immeasurable suffering, I know that it's often not for me. But David, the first words that he opens his song with is that the Lord is his God and his refuge. And we know that that's, that's sort of the nature of this, this text, that that's sort of a, a central theme to everything that we have going on, that, that David finds his refuge in the Lord. But I want to know, know how. I want to ask the question, how does David find his refuge in the Lord? What comfort is there for those who are afflicted? for those who are afflicted by the hands of lawless, sinful men, for those who are afflicted because of their own sin, because, because of the iniquity of us all. How, what comfort, what refuge, what shelter are there in the Lord? David goes from the proclamation of his refuge in the Lord to incur the just judgment of God upon himself. Look at verses 6 through 7. I'm, I'm sorry, look at uh, verses 3 through 5. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. And, and now David is calling upon the just judgment of God. Our, our first point being that he finds refuge in the judgment of God because he knows that he is not guilty. But he does so still because he wants his, his hearers. He knows that the psalms are, are to be sung. He, he wants people to read these and to sing these songs and be reminded of the truth that God is not partial in who receives judgment. That sin, no matter who does it, no matter where it comes from, deserves the just judgment of God. And so he is willing confidently to incur that upon himself. So at the same time as to preach that, to those who would read this psalm. And so more than just a plea of innocence is, is his preaching this truth that all sin must be accounted for and its penalty paid. David knows ultimately, though, that his pursuers are the ones that are guilty. David knows this because of verses 6 through 7. Immediately from calling the justice, just judgment of God upon himself, he goes straight to saying, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly or the congregation or the multitude of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. David knows that he's innocent. And so David calls upon the justice of God in a manner that 
as in, we see in verse 7, that he, he wants all of the peoples to be gathered about, about God. He wants, he wants the peoples to be before him because David wants God's eternal kingdom to be established. David finds refuge in the just judgment of God because he knows that there will come a day where sin will be no more. Where there, will, there will come a day where the, the evil will be silenced. The wicked will no longer be able to persecute him. He will no longer suffer at the hands of lawless men. And so David preaches the coming kingdom of the Lord. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. His enemies could not stand against him forever. And so I know that this first point is kind of, it seems disjointed or, or, or incomplete. How, okay, how does, how does David really find refuge in that? I get that, I get that he wants the just judgment of God to fall upon the wicked. It, that's quite clear. But as, as incomplete as it sounds, I, I want us to move forward from it to know, and knowing that it will find its fulfillment and find its completion as it's very much tied to the second and third points. So let's move on from the just judgment of God as David's refuge to look into the second point, that David finds his refuge in that God would save the righteous. And so I'm going to have to take a minute, so bear with me, because there are some deep theological implications to that statement. So start by looking at verses 8 through 11, and, and we'll do our best. I'll do my best to hold your attention. Verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So I just got done saying that David finds refuge in God's judging the world concerning sin. But how in the world is that a refuge for David? If David is confident in this, how, how does he have any comfort? If David is confident that God will judge sin and that all men are, will be impartially judged by their sin, according to their sin, how does David have any refuge in that if he knows himself to be a sinner? Aren't all men sinful? Aren't all men deserving of the just wrath of God because of their sin? Absolutely. I will stand by that notion that all men are sinful because it is of utmost importance in our understanding the fullness of the gospel of God's grace. It is of utmost importance that we understand that all men are sinful. In Adam, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Adam is our representative head. So I want to consider, without turning there, because it seems that this is disjointed from, well, not disjointed, rather it seems that David is kind of confused that he's going to call upon the judgment of God, and I'm saying that he knows that he's a sinner. You might think, no, he, he couldn't think that he's a sinner because of the language that he uses in this passage. But I want us to consider Psalm chapter 14. Because Psalm 14 was also written by David, and in Psalm 14, David explicitly points to the reality of all men's unrighteousness. But instead of turning there, I, I hear some of you moving, I want to look at Romans 3 instead. Sorry. Because in Romans 3, Romans 3, David, or, or Paul rather, 
takes David's argument in, in Psalm chapter 14 and expounds on it in a way that I think is incredibly helpful for us this morning. So now turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And if you're unfamiliar where that is, go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and then the next book will be Romans. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 9 through 18. 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And this is where Paul goes on to quote Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 14 is in here. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So I don't think it's a question. If Paul is, is referencing David in Psalm 14, I don't think it's a question that David knew this to be true. I, I know this to be true of myself. I wake up every single morning, every single morning, inclined to selfishness, inclined to arrogance, inclined to pride, to believe as, as though the world revolved around me. I know that I am sinful. I know that, that there is no righteousness in me because I know how, how quickly I am to turn to my own ways, to do whatever it is that is most pleasing to me. I need the gospel preached to me every single day to combat that. I need to know day in and day out by the word of God that he has done something as a result of that. A great pastor and theologian once said that our hearts are idol-making factories. I think that that is an incredibly helpful and that there is really no truer statement with regard to our own sinfulness. And so with that being said, with that basis being established, how can David find hope in God saving the righteous and is judging the wicked if there are no righteous? How can David find hope in God's salvation of the righteous? We were just in Romans chapter 3, and because I want to continue to follow Paul's thought pattern, look to Romans 4. Romans 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And another quoting of David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The reality is, in Psalm chapter 7, when David is able and willing to find confidence and hope and refuge, security and shelter, and that God will save the righteous when he knows that there are none, he actually knows that he is righteous. But he's not because of his works. Romans 4 was just explaining this idea that, that the laborer receives his wages as they're due to him. He deserves his wages. But to the one whom the Lord counts righteousness apart from works, he is blessed. That one receives that graciously. It is not deserved of him. And David knows that his righteousness is received by faith. David's righteousness was received by faith. David's faith was in God's covenant promises. 2 Samuel chapter 7, don't, don't turn to these places with me, I, I'm just referencing them. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it, God covenants with David that through him, through his line would come a son, would come the one who would rule over Israel eternally. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God covenants with Abraham that through him a multitude will be blessed and that his, his descendants will be as the sand of the seashore and that in him all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be blessed through Abraham. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what is called the first gospel or the proto-evangelion. God covenants with his people that he would send someone through the line of, of the woman, through the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of Satan. These covenant promises were not foreign to the Old Testament saints. These covenant promises of God were the refuges of the Old Testament saints. This is where they rested. This is where they found their security amidst their suffering. Their refuge was ultimately in a Messiah. Their refuge was ultimately in a redeemer, a savior, one who would come and, and wipe away their sins, one who would save them and who would preserve them to the end as his people. Paul tells us that David knows that his righteousness is received, is a gift of grace that is received by faith. And so this is why David found hope and that God will both judge the world concerning sin and that God would save the righteous. The two are married. The two are, are, are very much necessary for the coming kingdom of the Lord. And guess what? The reality is, is David found his refuge in Christ. The reality is that David found his refuge in Christ. This entire psalm is anticipatory of Jesus. This entire psalm and the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to the coming Messiah. 
It is pointing to the progressively revealing the reality of God's grace to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And so David, as he, as he goes through this psalm, as he says what he says of himself, of the judgment of God and the salvation of the righteousness, David is telling us that his refuge is found in Christ alone. Think of this. David was the king of Israel. He was afflicted at the hands of his own people, suffered unjustly by his own people, falsely accused. He was exiled and a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Does this sound familiar? Does that, does that language, do those, those phrases sound familiar? David served as a shadow of the things to come. David served as a type so that when the Christ would come, the mystery of the gospel revealed that the peoples would know that this is the covenant promise of God fulfilled to us. This is the Savior whom the world has been waiting for. The entire Old Testament anticipated Jesus and progressively revealed this reality. And so note this. David was looking forward to something. David, David was looking forward to something that had not yet happened and had not been completely revealed to him yet. The New Testament tells us that the fullness of the gospel was a mystery and that that mystery is revealed to us in fullness in Christ. Now, I, I don't know about you, but w- when I hope in something, or when I find security or refuge in something that I don't know is going to happen, or that I- even if someone of, of great credibility makes a promise to me, even when I read the promises of Scripture, the, because we still look forward to something too, it's hard Amidst our suffering, amidst, amidst the, the waxing and waning of our emotional instability, it is really, really difficult to find refuge in something that hasn't happened yet. Yet David, with immense confidence, finds hope and security and comfort and refuge in the coming Messiah. But church, this mystery has been revealed to us. This Christ has been made manifest to us. We have the entirety of the gospel, the grandeur of God's grace revealed to us in the scriptures this morning. How much more hope, how much more of a refuge do we have in this present reality? Christ has come and he is currently reigning Our hope is not only in a future event that he will return. Our hope is present and that he has come and he has inaugurated his kingdom. He has begun his kingdom in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins have already been raised from death to life. They have already been united to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we have already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Already. This is a present reality for those who are in Christ. And because this is a present reality, I I want us to contrast this again against our own suffering. I want, I want to consider the reality of, of your affliction, the reality of the pain and the sorrow that some of you may have brought into this place this morning. Or, or when you think about any future or past or present suffering that you've endured or might endure. 
I want to contrast this to that present reality of our union with Christ by looking to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's just two books forward from Romans. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses sixteen through eighteen. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, our present affliction our present suffering, when we endure injustice, as we look to the headlines, as we consider all that's going on in the world, as each of you think about the very things that you struggle with this morning, Paul tells us that our present suffering is light and momentary in comparison to the reality of the gospel, that our affliction is a light and momentary affliction that is washed away like white noise behind the trumpeting sound of God's grace in the gospel. Let me say that again. That our present affliction is washed away like white noise behind the trumpeting sound of God's glorious grace in the gospel. David's refuge was in Christ. David's refuge was in the reality that God would judge the world concerning sin, that God would save the righteous, and that is ultimately found and fulfilled in Christ. And so I want to look lastly then that, I, that our third point is that, that David finds his refuge in that God is a gracious God. That God is a gracious God. We've seen judgment and salvation and the gospel anticipated, so now... Back in Psalm chapter 7, let's look at verses 12 through 16. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So I, I get that. When we read a passage like that, you might be thinking to yourself, how in the world is that a refuge? How in the world do, do you translate grace when, when, when we have this language of war, the, the wetting of God's sword, the, the, the bending and, and readying of his bow, preparing his arrows as fiery shafts, 
How, how, do you, how do you get grace out of that? Well, before we get there, I, I do want to make note that this is abundantly clear as a reality of God's judgment. David's, David's tone is shifting back to judgment for a, a very particular reason. But th- this, I, know, I understand that in our culture, this judgment seems rather unattractive. And, and, and really, the, the present state of, of much of American evangelicalism this language is far from the pulpit. No one wants to think of God as a God who wets his sword, a God who bends and readies his bow for, for the judgment and punishment of sinful men. No, no one likes to hear that. No one likes to believe that God would do such a thing because that seems like awfully much. God, no, my, my God, we hear, my God is loving. My God, doesn't, my God wouldn't do that. He forgives everyone. But the reality is, is that this judgment only seems awfully much because we have made awfully little of the reality of sin. This judgment only seems harsh because we truly do not understand how wicked we are, how wicked all of the world is. We don't get it because we're not willing to get it. We're not willing to agree. We go, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm actually a good person. Don't we hear that a lot? I'm a really good person. I'm, you know, I see a homeless man on the street and I want to give him some money. You know, my, my sister was having some, some problems with this or that. And so I, you know, I helped her out. That's really, really gracious of me. That's really kind of me. I'm good. No. No, you're not. I, I'm not standing above you and telling you that that's true of you. The scripture is telling us it's true of all of us. And that God's just judgment of the wicked is good and righteous and necessary. And so all of that to say, again, you're probably still wondering how in the world I could drive the idea that God is gracious and that's a refuge for David from such a text. But I want to go back. I want to go back to verse 12. Look at 12 again. If a man does not repent, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. So, so what does that mean? Is, is punishment then only deserving of, of unrepentance? Is it just because we're not willing to say that we're bad, that we're, that we're facing judgment, that, that, that God would wet his sword and that he would bend and ready his, his bow towards us? No. The reality is, is that we have made a pit. We have dug it out. We have fallen into the hole that we have made. Our mischief returns upon our own head and our own skull, our violence descends. The use of repentance here is not to tell us some weird thing that, that judgment is only for unrepentance. Judgment is for all sinful men impartially. The use of repentance here is because David is calling his enemies to repentance. David is acknowledging that his enemies deserve punishment, that all sin deserves punishment, yet David calls on them to repent. The Old Testament is filled with prophetic pronunciations of judgment, but nearly every single time that we see the prophetic pronunciation of judgment, we see married to it the invitation to turn from their sins and to trust in God, to repent and to believe. 
Do those words sound familiar? Jesus' ministry was earmarked, earmarked by that statement, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. David is inviting, David is, is saying that, that this doesn't have to happen to you. Turn from your sin and trust in God who is gracious beyond all compare. David is inviting his enemies to turn. David could have hated his enemies. And, and really, in, in today's standards, we probably think that he should have. Or uh, today's standards, I, I mean our own sinfulness that we believe that. But th there were numerous times, particularly if we're, uh, I didn't make mention early on, Saul, uh, uh, most scholars are thinking that Cush was sent of Saul. But there are the two possibilities. There was either Saul or Absalom. But most scholars think that, that, that uh, he was sent of Saul, this man Cush. And David, in, be, in his being pursued by Saul, was, was pursued to the point where they were both in a cave, in a cave of Adullam. And David had Saul's back to him. The man who wanted to take David's life. The man who knew that, that deserved the just wrath of God on his behalf. David had the opportunity to take Saul's life and to end his own suffering. But guess what David does? The exact opposite. And so David is painting this picture for us that, that we must understand also that in injustices, in, in the, the present reality of the sinful world that we live in, that our enemies are not to be hated on our behalf. We are to call them to repentance. And so David does this very thing in this text. Believers, I don't want to nullify your affliction. I don't want to have said everything that I've said and, and just pretend that it's not a big deal. I get that it's a big deal. I, I know I'm young and, and probably a great deal of you have suffered far more than I have, seen things that I may never see experience things that I can't even comprehend. But instead of making light of your affliction, what I wanted to do this morning was to point you to the present reality of your refuge in Christ. To point you to the, the security that you have in Jesus, in the person and work of Christ. To, to not make little of your affliction, but to make much of Jesus. And in the making much of Jesus, you may see and contrast and compare the reality that our suffering is little in comparison. It's, it's like a vapor, a breath. It's here for a moment and it's gone as we compare it to the, the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God's grace in the gospel, that he would consider sinful men and women such as us, that he, that he would love us, that he would send his son on our behalf, that he would give us a righteousness that we could never deserve, and that it is all received by faith. I pray, I pray that you see your afflictions in such a light. I pray that, that not that you just ignore suffering because Scripture calls us to, to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And so I want us to do that. But as David says that his shield is with God, I want us to, to recognize also that a shield is only necessary when arrows or swords or something is flying at you. We don't need a shield like standing still in school or 
We don't need a shield hanging out at home. We're not sitting on the couch with a shield at our side. We use a shield when we need protection, when we need a refuge from our suffering. The suffering is a reality. It's, it doesn't just go away. It's, it's going to happen. But amidst your suffering, you have a good and gracious God who loves you and who cares for you. And so weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. But find your joy and your refuge in the Christ who has loved you. And so if, if there are unbelievers in this room this morning, I don't stand above you. I'm not better than you. The reality is that I, I deserve the same punishment that you deserve. And instead of that, I invite you in the same manner that David invited his enemies who sought to kill him. I know if you're there are unbelievers in here, you're not trying to kill me. I invite you in the same manner to repent and believe. The reality is you have no refuge from the wrath of God apart from Christ. Christ is our shield. He is the only way to the Father and the only protection that we have from his wrath. And so I plead with you, repent and believe. Church, in light of this gospel, let us join David in his doxology in Psalm chapter 7, verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let me pray. Father, we, we are grateful that as we suffer, as we endure hardship and affliction, as, as we are faced with the present reality of sin in the world, the corruption of our natures, that we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ the righteous, that he is our shield that He is our refuge. He is our hope and security amidst our suffering. God, may the, the glorious sound of the Gospel resound in our ears this morning as we go from this place. May You be exalted in our midst as we worship You through song and as we go from this place pleading with our brothers, pleading with the world to repent and believe, to trust in the Christ who, is, who can only provide them a shield. Trust in the only refuge for mankind. We thank you, we love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.